And Captain Mollard, how did you first get involved in aviation? Well, my brother was in the Royal Naval Air Service in 1917, and I thought that I'd follow his footsteps. And while I was at public school, Sir John Salmon came round and said that lots of Air Force officers after the war wanted to get their bowler hats and retire, and he was very anxious to get schoolboys to come in. So where did you do your training? I did my training at number five flying training school at Schottick, which is six miles outside Chester. It's now called Sealand. And was it a very lengthy business? One year. And what sort of um, um, uh, experiences did you have during your training? Well, it was very routine. Um, we started off with the old 504K Avro. We went on to Bristol Fighters, DH9As. And we were rather fortunate there because we had one or two other uh, aircraft which were on the base which we were allowed to fly. And then you went into Imperial Airways. At what point in time was this? In February 1929 I joined Imperial Airways at Croydon. And did it, was this just in response to an advert for, um, for flying stuff or was it something you just decided you wanted to do? Well, I wanted to continue flying and I had a short service commission and unfortunately... Uh, S.N. Webster had won the Schneider Cup. He was the one ahead of me, and he got the permanent commission of my station, and so I had to take my bowler hat. And then uh, when you joined Imperial Airways, did they make you go through some fresh training? No, we didn't do any training at all. Uh, Major Brackley asked me to take him up, a very brave man, and I just flew him around Croydon Airport, and he said, that's fine, that's all right. And what sort of aircraft did you do this fight in? Uh, Henry Page W8B. Uh, how quickly after you joined Imperial Airways were you actually flying passengers? I did one um, flight under supervision to Paris with Captain A.S. Wilcoxon, uh, and um, then I was put on the roster to fly. So you started off on the Paris route. What, what was aviation like in those days as far as the public were concerned? I think it was fairly comfortable as far as the public were concerned, and it was reasonably punctual. The facilities were very, very limited. In fact, when I was asked to talk to the control tower, which we had only radio telephony in those days, I thought they were speaking some foreign language. I couldn't understand what they were saying. Was it a routine run to, to Paris, or did you get involved in a number of adventures? Oh, it's quite routine. Um, you didn't do London-Paris all the time. Sometimes you did london um, Paris by itself and return. Sometimes one went to London, Ostend, Brussels, Cologne and return. And sometimes if you were lucky, you got a, a trip London, Paris, Bar Zurich, which was the longest one operated at the time. And of course, we were earning flying pay in those days, so that was one we rather, rather liked to have. Were Imperial Airways captains in those days treated as men apart? As men apart from what? From the ordinary run of folk. I mean, do you find that you had special treatment when you were at your night stops? Oh, no. Um, in fact, when I started to fly there, we used to fly in grey flannel trousers and um, a uniform jacket. What sort of accommodation did they give you for your night stops in uh, Paris and Brussels? Oh, very good. We used to stay in, in Paris in the Edward Set Hotel, which was a very nice hotel. The offices were close by. And, uh, you know, you had cafe complet in the morning, something before you went down to Le Bourget to take off. When you were flying on this particular route, 
Um, did you then have any idea of how things were going to develop? Were you kept aware of the plans of the company? No, none at all. In fact, uh, I thought I was securely flying European routes, and then unfortunately the captain called Woodbridge killed himself at Jask in the Persian Gulf, and uh, Major Brackley called me and said, look, you've flown in the Far East, haven't you? And I said, well, I've flown in India. He said, that's good enough. He said, pack your bags and be ready to leave on Friday. And so it wasn't long before you were much further afield than originally? Well, I went out to Cairo where I first met Jimmy Alga there in uh, September 29, and I found myself flying... um, originally as far as Basra and then on to Karachi later on and the route extended Calcutta, Rangoon, eventually Singapore and Australia. Well now we're talking of events which led up to the first experimental ma- uh, mail flight in April of 1931. Uh, as far as you were concerned, how did uh, you become involved in this flight? Well I merely got an instruction to say that uh, Captain Alga was coming to Karachi and we would join forces there and that he and I would fly alternate legs to Australia. And how much did you know of the route beyond Karachi at that time? Well, we knew nothing. Well, I knew the route as far as Calcutta, but beyond Calcutta we knew nothing at all. So how did you set about preparing yourself for this flight? Well, we collected all the maps we could and um, worked out and got weather information from the meteorological office in Karachi. They told us what conditions to expect, and uh, we set off rather hopefully uh, intending to reach a destination. How about the landing grounds themselves? I mean, what information was available about the various stops along the route? Well, it was, it was rather sparse, actually, uh, and uh, it was ra- rather amusing that um, we'd talked with Alan Cobham in London before that, and he said, now there's an aerodrome at Alor Star which you can use, and he said, it's a reclaimed paddy field where they grow rice, you know, and of course it's saturated, but he said, you'll find that eight miles south of Alor Star. When Jim and I got there, we circled Arrow Star and looked for this area, and we couldn't find it at all. And eventually, when we were thinking of landing on a racetrack there, um, we suddenly saw there was a, a smoke fire being burnt uh, due north of the town. And we went over there, and we found that's where the aerodrome was, a slight error. And further south again, when you had this forced landing at Copang because of um, a shortage of fuel, um, what were your impressions of that particular incident? Did you feel that um, uh, it was uh, something that could have been avoided or was it one of these things that just happens out of the blue? Well, I can only give my personal impressions on that, but I am quite convinced that we had a petrol leak in the second half of the, of the trip because Captain Alga was flying that sector and I was doing co-pilot to him and I was reading petrol gauges all the way through their boiler type gauges you know and you could watch the petrol ga- running down the boiler type tubes and uh, we were had quite adequate petrol to reach our destination up to the halfway point and then suddenly we started to use more petrol than we had before but that's only a personal impression the landing itself almost came off i believe captain algo says that um, uh, from above the the field on which you landed uh, looked completely reliable, and it, it was almost um, uh, fate that there were some rocks underneath. Otherwise, perhaps you could have gone on. Well, I always thought that uh, Jimmy was a very good pilot, and we decided to put down because we hadn't got enough petrol. In fact, he was reading north on, north on both tanks to go any further, so we, he decided to put down on a, a pony track. It wasn't really a big race course, but it was enough to possibly get in, but we wouldn't have got out again. And then uh, as we were making the approach, he suddenly 
did a 90-degree turn to port, and I thought, poor chaps, the strain's been too much for him. And then when he levelled off again, I saw a beautiful expanse of about a thousand yards of green grass, and I thought, a magnificent pilot I'm flying with. Uh, and it wasn't until we touched the tops of the grass, and he said, all off, and I switched off all four, in, uh, all three inches, I beg your pardon. Um, and he touched down, and then we ran about 50 yards, and uh, we hit one of these basalt rocks, and starboard wheel was knocked off, and then the port wheel, and we finished flat on the fuselage. Now, I know uh, that um, this upset the schedule for the first experimental mail, in that obviously uh, the mail then was then collected by uh, Kingsford Smith and taken back to Australia. Uh, I believe you were then detailed to go and obtain a new aircraft. Could you give me the background to this? Well, I merely received a signal saying that I was to proceed with Kingsford Smith and Scotty Allen to Darwin. And when I got to Darwin, there was a signal received by the agents, Jolly and Company, said Mollard to proceed by first train to Perth. Unfortunately, there was no railway, so I couldn't do that, but they booked me a passage on the coastal steamer, and I went down by that to negotiate the purchase of an aircraft from Norman Braley in Western Australia. And when you say negotiate the purchase, did you have complete charge of the actual financial deal? Well, I was the representative in Perth, I was there, and we talked... Uh, on prices and things and conditions of sale. And I spent about £200 in cables to head office in London uh, until we finally reached an agreement. Now, how did this aircraft then enter back into the uh, originally planned service? Well, uh, I I was told that I was to take this aircraft from Darwin to to Karachi uh, and that it was to be delivered there by Western Australian Airways. They did um, produce a pilot to take the aircraft there, but he hadn't flown multi-engine aircraft, which was, again, rather curious, because when we went to take off from Perth, he opened each engine individually, so we did a sort of little ground loop. Um, However, we we proceeded on our way until we got to Wyndham. And at Wyndham, he said, I'm not going any farther because Darwin's a very small airport. He said, I won't take it, but I said, the... Condition of sale was that this aircraft was delivered by Western Australia to Darwin. He said, it doesn't matter what the conditions are, I said, I'm going back to Perth. So I was left to take it myself. Now, uh, this was a DH-66. How did this differ from the aircraft on which you've been uh, making the first part of the flight? Well, the real main difference, as far as I was concerned, was that it had a tailwheel instead of a, a skid pan. And uh, when I got to Darwin, because I'd been terrified what he'd tell me about the small size for this large aeroplane. I came in very low over the barbed wire fence and didn't realise this tailwheel hung down and I took the top wire off the fence with my tailwheel. The result was we landed before we reached the circle in the centre of the aerodrome. And uh, the Reuters correspondent there said, well, they're always complaining about the small size of Darwin Aerodrome. Here's the biggest aircraft we've ever had land here and it hasn't used half the aerodrome. So he said, it must be good enough. <laughs> you left Darwin with the first uh, northbound mails, which you took over from uh, Qantas and uh, Captain Russell Tapp. Um, was there anything special about your journey back to Karachi? Well, if I may correct you, it wasn't the first, it was the second experimental flight. And there was nothing uh, other than a routine flight, except we happened to have a nice tailwind from Darwin to Kopang, and we made a time of four hours forty, which was a record which stood for some years. Was there a lot of interest in Australia 
of the fact that this was the first uh, few males to come through? Oh, it was very considerable in Australia. They, they wanted this airmail connection between the UK and Australia, and um, it was very well publicised. How did you find the attitude of the Dutch along the route? Because they, of course, were wanting to operate their own services at that time. Well, that is quite true, but as far as we were concerned, they were very cooperative. They gave us all the information that we could have. Now, Captain Mollard, could we move on now to 1933, when you were involved in uh, delivering... Uh, an Atalanta uh, from United Kingdom to Karachi. What was the purpose of this flight? Well, I was in London at the time and I was asked by Woods Humphrey, the managing director, if I would take the Atalanta to Karachi to position it for the opening of the route to through Calcutta to Singapore. Of course, I said yes and um, I duly left. What sort of aircraft was the Atalanta to fly? It was a very fine aircraft. Um, in, in point of fact, uh, I did suggest that later that I, I'd like to fly one in the McRobertson race if they put more powerful engines in it. was slightly underpowered. It had several 340s in it. It should have had 500s. But um, it was a very good aeroplane. It was as strong as the first or fourth bridge. Uh, we've seen one bounce the height of a hangar with no damage at all. Uh, quite incredible. Um, it was a really strong, rugged aircraft, and it was the first aircraft in the world that had four engines in the wing. What was its passenger appeal? Oh, for the time, it was quite luxurious, but there were some curious things. They got experts to decide on the colour scheme inside, and uh, they came up with um, a rather butter-coloured interior, which was supposed to keep flies out, but the flies hadn't been told, and they thought it was a butter, and so they all came in madly over the deserts. So it was uh, a fairly warm aircraft for the passengers to fly in in the tropics. Well, we had a much better altitude than we had on the old DH-66s, so we could fly at 8,000 or 9,000 feet where it was fairly cool. Now, at this time, 1933, Imperial Airways was getting a lot of criticism in the press because... Uh, the record-breakers were monopolising the news, they were going over the routes over which you yourself were flying, and, of course, doing it in uh, fantastic times. Do you think that this criticism in the press was fair? Yes, I do think it was fair, but it was the policy of the company to try and pay a dividend, which for many years they did. 4% was, I think, the highest. But they did pay dividends, but their objective was to have as much payload as possible to enable them to pay dividends and make a profit. And consequently, we had a rather short range on the aircraft. And whereas, for example, KLM could fly from Basra all the way to Karachi without refueling, and if necessary, go on as far as Jodhpur, we had to go down three or four aerodromes to refuel. Sometimes they have to be obliterated by dust storms or other bad weather, and we got delayed. Can you give me the background to the survey flight you made 10 years after the time of which we were talking just now, in other words, in 1943, to Mauritius? Well, that was a result of the enemy action in the Mozambique Channel. There was submarine attacks almost daily on shipping in the Mozambique Channel. Many ships were lost, and um, Mauritius became rather isolated from the point of view of communications and the governor uh, approached the UK with a view to getting something done about the situation. How did you set about this survey flight? 
Well, I acquired all the information I could from the Royal Air Force, who had operated flying boats over there several times before. They were very cooperative, as they always have been, and they gave me as much information as they could. What aircraft did you use for the flight? Uh, an S-30 flying boat, um, Champion was its name, so very similar to the Empire flying boats, rather larger and a little faster. Was this readily available uh, when you set out from Durban? We had two, and I picked it up actually in Kasumu, uh, Champion. And the flight itself, how did that go? It, it went according to plan. Um, we, we flew across to Madagascar, to Diego Suarez, and then from Diego Suarez uh, to, to Mauritius. Did you have any trouble in uh, navigational field in the flight? Well, it, it was rather tricky navigation because the variation uh, was up to nine degrees in error according to the charts which I was using. And so I decided that I would navigate on a, a system of known error and laid a, a course to come out south of the island. And then I used a drift sight and a, a sun compass to keep my position and finally t- take a sun position line through the island and run up the sun position line to the island. And did your uh, fellow officers have faith in this method? Uh, they were hopeful, may I say, that it would work out all right. And in, in point of fact, uh, when we got there, the island was rather obscured by low cloud and rain showers, and we were rather glad to make a landfall when we did. And this, I take it, um, was the first of many flights? It was never actually operated as a regular service by BOAC. But obviously, during the war, uh, it provided relief for the island. Oh, that is quite true, yes. Now, if we could move on uh, again, uh, I'd just like to ask you a few things about the uh, time that you spent with uh, Malayan Airways, uh, because you became involved in Malayan Airways in 1947, um, although Malayan Airways itself, I believe, was registered some ten years previously. That is quite right, but it didn't operate till 1947. It commenced operating as an airline in May 47, and I was sent out by BOAC as technical advisor in November 1947. How did you find the organisation when you arrived there? Rather sketchy. And how did you set about improving it? Well, from my experience of BOAC methods, I adopted them to a small feeder airline. The type of aircraft you were using? When I arrived there, they had a fleet of three console aircraft, and I decided that wasn't going to be a very paying proposition, so we set about acquiring DC-3 or Dakota aircraft. You were with Malayan Airways for a number of years, and what was the size of the organisation when you left it finally? Well, when you say finally, I actually left it twice, because I retired after ten years, and after two and a half years, they asked me to go back again because things had gone rather wrong. Uh, when I left, uh, for, finally, um, it had quite a respectable fleet then. We had two Comets, um, two DC- DC-4s, and uh, 11 Dakotas, and various small aircraft were operating on small fields. And obviously uh, a successful airline. It was a little gold mine, actually. 
it was helped very largely, I think, through the emergency <coughs> in Malaya, because people decided it was rather safer to fly than it was to go by car or train. A lot of um, uh, people have felt that uh, the so-called emerging nations um, have developed their own airlines just out of prestige and for no other reason. Um, there was nothing of this in the Malayan Airlines. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, they thought that communications should be rapid and the terrain was very bad. For example, we operated uh, services throughout Borneo and the normal method of progressing from one place to another in Borneo was to go down the river to the coast, up the coast and up another river. Well, the air, air operations, of course, made this very much faster than you can possibly imagine. Well, now, we began this discussion, you were talking about uh, joining the Royal Air Force, and you mentioned that you uh, went to India with the Royal Air Force. Uh, what was life like in the RAF in India in the 1929-1930 period? Well, I'm afraid I can't tell you, because I went to India in 1922 with the Royal Air Force, which was a bit before that time. But life was really very pleasant there. It was somewhat primitive, but... Um, for example, when I first went to, to India, I was a few days at Karachi, then I went down to Mbala, and in Mbala there was no electricity. We had hurricane lamps even in the club, and no refrigerators. Uh, so you didn't get all the luxuries of life, and uh, you didn't have electric fans because there was no electricity. You had uh, punkers, which uh, somebody used to pull for him until he went to sleep, and then you, you woke up in a bath of perspiration and you threw a slipper at him and asked him to pull again, and he'd pull again until he went to sleep and you went to sleep. <laughs> was it an active life as far as flying was concerned? Well, up on the, on the frontier, uh, at Lambala it was training. When I went up to Dardan on the frontier, it was operational. We had very, very small wars against the punitive expeditions, you might call them, really, against the dissentient tribesmen. I believe you had one incident where you um, uh, literally lost an engine. It almost fell out. Well, I didn't quite lose it. Uh, it, it was a rather funny incident because I'd taken off and I was about 400 feet when I suddenly I saw the radi radiator cap, which was commonly used uh, to keep on the horizon for flying level. And this disappeared and uh, there was a nasty noise and the propeller had struck the undercase and disintegrated. But the weight was still there, so I was able to effect quite a good landing. But it was, uh, again, rather amusing because when we examined, the two top engine bearers had gone, and one of the bottom engine bearers had gone, and where the fracture originally took place was half an inch from the AID stamp on it. You know? Thanks indeed for being so patient.